afternoon. You're on the panel, RNZ National. Verity Johnson and Peter Dunwood today. Now, a cyber incident has hit Auckland Transport Hop System. It's believed to be ransomware, and it has taken top-ups and other hop card services offline, but you will still be able to tag on and off, uh, even if your card may not be able to be topped, topped up. So just be aware of that uh, this afternoon when you're travelling. Looking at solutions to crime first, which has, of course, been a big topic on the campaign trail. Now, yesterday we talked about a report that shows without stable housing, prisoners are nearly five times more likely to be re-imprisoned within a year of release than those who do have stable housing. And like a place to live to prevent people from offending and re-offending, having a job is key. But... 85% of all entry-level jobs require a driving licence. That's a barrier. That's been discussed uh, over the last uh, day or so. With us, Executive Director of the New Zealand Howard League for Penal Reform, Mike Williams. He became an officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit in January for his contributions to prison reform and community issues. Mike, kia ora. Good to have you here. Kia ora. Pleased to be here. Let's kick off with a story. You've got a story about a young man appearing before a Northland judge. Right. Um, well, this young Maori guy had um, dozens and dozens, literally, of, of cases of driving without a licence. And Judge Greg Davis um, told him that if you don't get a licence, you face a a jail sentence. And that's true of a lot of young Maori. Um, There are supposedly about 500 uh, people in jail just for driving without a licence. Anyhow, um, our tutor up there um, got him and discovered that he was completely illiterate. And uh, he'd actually grown up in a very happy family, but... uh, they were itinerant agricultural workers and he just never went to school. Yeah. And um, you don't actually need to be able to read and write to get a driver's licence. Um, you can get uh, someone to read for you, but of course you must get the questions right and there's, there's someone there keeping a close eye on you. And um, he got his licence. In fact, he got all of the questions right and so did his partner. And when he appeared in front of Judge Davis again... Uh, Judge Davis not only let him off, but wiped all his fines as well. So, you know, it's really important, I think, that uh, we we pay attention to driver's licences because, you, get, you know, when you get out of jail, our problem, we've got a very high incarceration rate. And it is almost totally caused by a high rate of reoffending. And, you know, I listened to your program earlier in the week and... It was very good, you know, if you can get a job when you get out, then um, your chances of you re-offending are heavily reduced. And if you have a look on the Howard Leeds website, there's a piece of research by John Upping, who's a founder of UMR, which uh, you can click on and see uh, about half the people who get licences will have a job 
within a year. Gosh, it well, really and this is really what it's all about, isn't it? Because, um, you know, that notion of reoffending, going back into prison, how to how to put a barrier to it, and something as simple as this, getting a driver's licence, Verity Johnson, uh, interesting that it's uh, such a affirmation of mm. uh, trying to break that cycle. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those things that you wouldn't ever, if you were looking at it from the outside, on the top level, if you're, you know, just an average person, you wouldn't think about it because you would no. think, oh, everyone's got a driver's license. You just wouldn't consider it. But when you work on that level of, like, in real life detail, you realise how impactful it is. Mike, I'm curious, how is the Howard League funded? Is it, like, do you get government money? And is that going to be under threat if they bring in a national act coalition which is less keen on, well... As David Seymour was saying, it just basically wants to put more people in prison. But he is, can I just say that he is for um, prisoners learning to drive and learning to read. Which is why I was curious. Yeah, Mike. No, that's a very good question. But we have presented the program. It is funded by, out of the corrections budget. Uh, It's the only program that the Howard League undertakes that is funded by the government. But um, it's supported by the National Party. And we actually had it, um, Bill English, Sir Bill English, runs a company called Impact Lab. And Impact Lab evaluates programs like our own to see if it's of value to the Crown. And what Impact Lab, Lab found, and you can see this on our website too, is that for every dollar you spend getting released prisoners their driver's licences, the return to the Crown is $3.20. So I think we're pretty safe. Uh, we have um, two more years of government funding, and I think any government would want us to carry on. Peter. Look, I, look, I value this program, and I value your work, Mike. I think that you're highlighting what is a critical point, that the, the sort of lock them up and throw away the key mentality simply doesn't work because 85% of our prison population comes back to prison eventually anyway. Yeah. We've, we've got to break the cycle. You're doing that by giving people, it seems to me, a really basic life skill to go along with any uh, professional qualifications or otherwise they might have acquired while they've been in prison. But it's really about enabling people to function effectively in society to give them a chance, isn't it? It is. And what I would add is that um, at the end of this month, the Howard League will have, uh, our instructors will have generated 20,000 licenses, of which over 60% of our clients identify as Maori. So that is one way of reducing the gross overrepresentation of Maori in our prison system. Do you have any information, Mike, about, um, say, with that 20,000 that you've helped or whatever the number might be, what their subsequent path is? Uh, are you keeping them um, out of prison? Are you keeping them in, in, in leading normal lives? Or, or you know, what's the, 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 the recidivism rate? We're, we're researching that at the moment, but uh, the, the only thing we've got at the moment, and we're going to do some more research this year, um, funding if funding's available, is that half of our people will have gainful jobs within a year. And if we can get afford to give them a truck licence or a forklift licence, 100% of them will have, um, uh, have a job. And let me just tell you one snippet. I had a call from a supplier in Waira who said that he would do 15 forklift licences for the Howard League for $3,000. And I jumped at that offer. And um, the 
local our our um, instructor down in Wara uh, managed to get she got fourteen, and they were mainly gang members, and um, uh, all fourteen passed their forklift license. It's not that difficult. And um, I checked up, I rang her about three weeks later, and I also rang a la- local sergeant, um, who I knew quite well, a police policewoman. And um, out of that 14, uh, 13 had full-time jobs. Yeah, Mike, real demand. amazing. Yeah, here's, here's one for you, Mike. Many years ago, I was an employment officer in the employment service of the Department of Labour, the key to most job seekers gaining employment was having a driver's licence. It was that simple, Verity. Yeah, I think that's really true. Absolutely. And and if you give people a purpose, so they've got got the tools like having the driver's licence, then they're able to live more um, normal lives and presumably the other pressures upon them that led them to commit crime in the first place become less pressing. They can get on and rehabilitate themselves. So they might and also, already. just because you can get, when you have a driver's licence, then you can get a bank account, then you yep. can get, like, of all these government services, yeah. which previously mm. we wouldn't have, they come from a driver's licence. So it's the first thing. But I'd make the point, um, folks, that it is actually quite expensive. Um, and I got my driver's licence the day I turned 15. I went down and saw the only traffic cop in Hastings. He drove me round the block. I did a handbrake start on the only hill in Hastings, which is a hump over the railway line in Murdoch Road. <laughs> I went back to his office, and he charged me 10 shillings and gave me my licence, and that's the licence I've still got. Mm. Now, we now have three-level licensing, and some places have a 40%, maybe has a 40% pass rate. So you can run up, you know, six, $700 getting your licence, and that's just not on. Yeah. Mm. Very good, Mike. A really interesting topic this one, isn't it? Uh, for now, kia ora. Appreciate your time. That's Mike Williams there, uh, the uh, former executive director of the New Zealand Howard League for Penal Reform, all about um, driver's licence. Here's a stat for you. 51% of prisoners have a driver's licence of anyone uh, compared with uh, 85% of the general population. So that is quite a large gap. 18 past four, the panel, RNZ National. Uh, Verity Johnson, Peter Dunn with me. Wellington, it's been a poster child for cycle lane wars. Think the island-based cycleway debacle. It could be a Peter Jackson film trilogy. But latest stats seem to show Wellingtonians are getting on their bikes. There has been a 93% increase in cyclists passing the Basin Reserve following the installation of a two-lane bike route, reports the Post. And it seems people aren't just diverting their route as they have, uh, as there have been no declines in nearby routes. So if you build it, they will come. Is that the mantra? With us, Patrick Morgan from the Cycle Action Network. Kia ora, Patrick. Kia ora, Koto. So is this a boom or is it a blip? It's a boom. Look, there's no doubt in Wellington the numbers of people getting around by bike easily and conveniently has exploded, especially where the council has put protected bike lanes. And this is something we'll continue to see. So 10,500 compared to 5,500 last year, that's a significant jump. What do you put it down to? Sure, and this is just for a single month. Um, 
you know, the formula is the same all over the world. When you put in a network of connected and protected bike lanes, people flock to them. There's no reason that Wellington is going to be any different. Um, the evidence is really strong that people are looking for more ways to get around in a you know, convenient, fun and, and low climate way. Um, what could be more perfect than a bike or an e-bike? What are you reckon, Verity? Um, yeah, I'm curious, Patrick. I'm not from Wellington, forgive me here. Explain something to me. Where is the majority of the opposition coming from this? Is it a certain demographic and are they just a large demographic who are you know, supposedly speaking for the people or they're a small demographic who are um, out of touch but very vocal? Look, certainly there is a vocal opposition. I mean, I'd much rather focus on the people who are going to benefit from this. Uh, children, young people, people who either choose not to drive or don't want to drive, but still want access to their city. And that's why the city is providing bike lanes. You asked about the opposition. You know, change is hard. And I understand that when it's happening in the street in front of your house or your business, you're going to have an opinion on that. But I'm really glad that most city councillors get it, that... Um, Making our streets safe and attractive is a high priority for councillors and the Mayor of Wellington, and that's why they keep getting re-elected. Peter? Oh, look, as someone who lives in Wellington, there's no doubt about the increase in, in the number of cyclists. Do you and, see it yourself? Oh, absolutely, and it's, it's exploding, I, and I agree with Patrick on, on that score. My only concern is, well, it's a minor one, really, because it's not to do with cyclists. A lot of Wellington roads don't lend themselves to cyclists. They don't even lend themselves to cars parked on the sides. They are simply too narrow, and I think there are some issues that emerge around that, which, as I say, not directly the responsibility of cyclists, but it's narrow roads, which leads me to my next point, mm. which you made about people using cycleways. Um, I don't think that's always happening, and I just wonder how we encourage people for their own safety to get off the road and onto the cycleway that might be adjacent to the road. Yeah, that's a great question, Peter. So no one wants bike lanes on every street mm. in the city. Um, we definitely want protected bike lanes uh, on the main arterials that mm. connect our suburbs. On quiet streets where people live, uh, taming traffic is the priority. So more use of 30 kilometre an hour mm. speeds to make our roads you know, safer and quieter goes a long way to um, allowing more people to get around by bike. So, you know, you're not going to see a bike lane on every street in Wellington anytime soon. So this is part of the 166-kilometre Pāneke Pōneke bike network plan. I've got to say, it comes with a huge price for a very cash-strapped city, Patrick, which was also the issue today uh, in the Post. Uh, $226 million over the next 10 years. Are we over-engineering our cycle lanes in Wellington? One of the things I really like about Wellington City's approach is they're going for a, a transitional approach where initially bike lanes are built using very inexpensive materials like curbing and posts. So they're really quick to build and we, can, we know whether they're, they're in the right place and in the right design very quickly. But, you know, talking about the cost, the cost of climate crisis, of car dependency, is overwhelming us. Wellingtonians spend more than $2 billion on fuel that's money that leaves the local economy. So, you know, let's keep that in perspective. And that's why I think so many people are concerned about more sustainable transport options. What do you think, Peter? Well, just a question that occurred to me as, as Patrick was talking was large parts of the central city are, seem set to become pedestrian 
zones. I just wonder, will, will that mean that cyclists also will not be able to ride through those? And certainly vehicle, motor vehicles won't be going through them, but what about cyclists? Will they be also having to go around the edge or will there be rights of way for them? Yeah, so thinking about the Golden Mile, I mean, mm. that's going to be a pedestrian and public transport priority corridor. You'll still be able to ride a bike down there, but there won't be dedicated bike lanes along the whole way. And that's why at Cycle Wellington, we're campaigning for Keys Please, which is a dedicated connection between Courtney Place and the railway station along the waterfront quays. People walking on the waterfront shouldn't have to share with people, you know, biking Mm. a bit quickly. Mm. So let's just take one lane off the waterfront quays and make that a protected bike lane. And presumably if you had the the pedestrian, you know, the Golden Mile pedestrianised, that that wouldn't impede cyclist access to that, but at the same time would, would also give those people who are walking the Golden Mile... Uh, not not the concern of look, having to look out for cyclists. Yeah, I mean, the Golden Mile should be mainly about making it a great place mm-hmm. to shop, to linger, to walk. Um, so having a direct connection along the quays is the answer to, um, you know, getting everyone around where they want to go and making the city a nicer place mm-hmm. to be and shop. Do you and you I think cycle, the retailers are behind that. Yeah. Do you cycle in Wellington, uh, sorry, in Auckland Verity mm-hmm. at all? No, I don't. And I was, you just haven't bought a bike or...? No, it, uh, no, because uh, I scoot, right? I use limes and stuff a lot. Um, I was, well, I guess, like the main reason I was just thinking about this is I wouldn't cycle because I'm scared, and because a lot of the time when I'm sort of cycling, or when I'm when I'm sorry, when I'm scooting in Auckland, I get a lot of drivers try to drive really aggressively up to you, and you get a lot of like catcalling, a lot yeah. of heckles. Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's fine. Like I don't really care, but like I probably feel. Uh, the reason I scoot, not bike, is on when you scoot, you're on the pavement. And actually, c- and can I just say, jump in uh, on that, Patrick, there was a terrible accident, rather a terrible story on social media of some cyclists in Wellington uh, really badly hurt. I think it was just uh, yesterday. Yeah, I mean, that does happen on occasion. It's, it's not good news. But again, let's keep it in perspective. We know that more than 300 people die on our roads every year. That's the cost of high car dependency. So moving more people to biking, public transport, walking, and not having to drive everywhere is going no. to be good for our society. Sure. Well, here's one for you, Patrick. Uh, Robin says, we were rushed through Wellington on Monday morning from a cancelled flight in Palmerston North. We went through around 8am, and I was astounded at the number of cyclists we saw. In fact, it was a point of conversation on the bus. So there you go. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Patrick, kia ora. Good to have you here. Uh, Patrick Morgan there from the Cycle Action Network. We have this afternoon Peter Dunn and Verity Johnson. All right, you've been looking forward to this. Look, coming up with something to eat for lunch every day is hard. You don't want to break the bank, certainly don't, but you do want something to look forward to. I cannot go past a homemade sandwich. Well, what's in a sandwich? The issue has been much discussed with a particular colleague today. (laughs) Here is none other than well-known host, Sunday morning host, Jim Mora, with the rather odd, rather unusual sandwich. Are you saying I'm unusual? Not at all, not in the slightest. Thank you. What I am asking, though, is... um, What's in your sandwich? What's your, what's your sandwich filling? Just lettuce. Just lettuce. And that's it? I'm sorry. I know it sounds underwhelming, but I'm a particular fan of just lettuce in a sandwich with a bit of salt and iceberg lettuce. And I know people frown on iceberg because 
it's mostly water, but that's fine. I mean, I'm sloshing around inside and I feel <laughs> fine. And, of course, iceberg lettuce does have vitamin A, Wallace, which helps your vision. So, for example, I can see you quite clearly right now. Have you never thought of thinking in the morning, you know what, I'm going to chuck in a bit of ham in there, oh, uh, Jim, maybe a, maybe, a, maybe an egg and a mayonnaise? Oh, I'm blocking my ears, Wallace. <laughs> no, funnily enough, I discovered the, the, the amazing value of just a bit of lettuce and butter in a sandwich many years ago, and it's been extraordinarily rewarding and fulfilling ever since. And that made the office chat. It was too weird with us now is Liz and Kakanui. Kia ora, Liz. Hi. <laughs> That's a bit odd, isn't it? I mean, a great, a great host, but uh, strange lettuce. That's it with a bit of black pepper. But what about yours? What's your favourite? Oh, um, a few weeks ago, I went to a shared morning tea, and I had a sandwich that took me back to my childhood and my nana, and it was cream cheese and crystallised ginger on white bread. Oh, it sounds like a Christmas present. Yeah, it's about 40 years since I had one of those. (laughs) Oh, you're inspiring. Verity's going all red. A bit hungry here. That doesn't. Cream cheese and crystallized ginger on lovely, soft, white bread, Liz. Yep, yep. I think I fell in love with you, Liz, with that one sandwich. <laughs> I, okay, you take the cake, Liz. Thanks for that. Thanks for calling. Uh, and with us from Eastbourne now is David. Welcome, David. Hi, good afternoon. What's yours? Cream cheese and dates. Um, nothing to dates. Yeah, just supermarket in dates. Uh, in um, good bread, brown bread, sourdough. Um, great thing is you can make the sandwiches up, wrap them individually for the, each day, freeze the ones for Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, and just um, you know, go through them in, in the week. No need to get get up so early. Well, you know what, Peter Dunn, this is in the this is in the category of uh, that sounds truly odd, but it could well just be delicious. I'm not sure. <laughs> to be, doesn't doesn't appeal to me. I'm afraid. Uh, I'm I'm probably more traditional in my sandwich likes. Um, probably um, rye bread. Um, uh, shredded lettuce, dill pickle, tomato. Ham or or roast beef with either a chili or chili sauce. They're soggy by Wednesday. Pardon? <laughs> That's what? Do you... They're soggy by Wednesday. Soggy by Wednesday, no, no, Peter. No, well, no, you make it fresh daily. Do you, do, oh, well. do, do you pre-prepare sandwiches for a week and then like make them all on a Monday and then eat the same sandwich effectively frozen? Absolutely. Do you? Absolutely, yeah. Do you ever eat them frozen or do you defrost them all in time? <laughs> Well, you just unwrap it. You know, when you get up in the morning, take it out of the fridge, go to work. It's defrosted by lunchtime and perfect. But what about if you suddenly feel like something different on Wednesday or Thursday? Yeah, or like you're overwhelmed by the existential terror of eating the same thing. A lot of questions here, David, for you. <laughs> okay, you just don't defrost it. You have something else. You can have one of Peter's peculiar ones. <laughs> David, I think you've just changed the way that I see humanity. Congratulations. Oh, I love it. Hey, David, thanks for joining the panel. <laughs> Welcome. Very good. And we had lots more besides. Here's a couple more. What a couple more. Uh, Kent says, Gordon Ramsay's kimchi and cheese toasty. Very good. Uh, white bread and fresh tomato. Actually, yeah, cl- classic. Mm. Classic. Uh, you cannot go past roast lamb and pickle sandwiches. Ali says, favourite. Uh, cream cheese, grated carrot, dates on whole wheat bread. And Mike says, tasty cheese and canned beetroot. I mean, the wider angle mm. to this, uh, while we're talking about it, is because... 
Everybody, every single person is really cutting back on lunch. You cannot deny that. Um, If you do uh, 10 bucks a day at the lowest Mm. for a lunch, that's 100 bucks a fortnight out of your fortnightly salary. It's a lot of money, isn't it? So if you can make your own, why not? Yeah. And also, I just am amazed that nobody has raised this yet, but Marmite. Like, Marmite is the ultimate sandwich and always will be the ultimate sandwich. (laughs) And I just... In a time of national crisis, you know what you need, Marmite. So there you go. You, oh, gosh, they're coming through now. So you, they heard the wonderful uh, uh, Jim Mora on his truly bizarre uh, sandwich, which is lettuce in between two slices of bread. You're on the panel, RNZ National. It's time for headlines. Oh, I love Jim. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Good <laughs> show. But not your sandwiches, sorry, Wallace. Oh, marama. Oh, yuck. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be sharing your lunch on shared Friday lunch. Get on, yep.